Open your copy of the Bible to Revelation chapter 1. There's a promise given in Revelation chapter 1 that if we read it out loud, there'll be a special blessing for us. And if we listen with reverence, there'll be a special blessing for us. We do this with all of the Bible, but we want to especially obey that right now. So let's take our Bibles. We're going to read Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy keep those, and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and from who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book. And send it to the seven churches, which are in Asia, Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. Having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one, like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band, and his head And hair were white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as it it is refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. Are you impressed? You should be. Just just to read the word. You may not understand everything there, but you know something big is going on. Jesus is speaking to John. John's going to tell us what he said. Hey, my, my nephew was always getting in trouble. Oh, I was getting in trouble. He was born from trouble. 
Should have been a country music singer, I suppose. <laughs> so we're going fishing. It's a beautiful day. Sun's out. We're going fishing. And we're walking down to the pond, and he's behind me. All of a sudden, you know, Wah! I hear him cry out. Like, I turn around, he's got a hook in his ear. <laughs> my hook came loose of my cane pole, and I caught my cousin by the ear. You ever try to take a hook out of your ear? Like, yeah, it's, it, was, it was ugly. So that, that ruined his day. <laughs> and sometimes we go down the pond, we get our lines so tangled up that we, all we spent, did all day was just untangle our lines. I don't remember where I heard it, but recently, I think it was actually a, a eulogy at a funeral, heard a story about a guy that was a brother or dad that would take his kids fishing and the kids would get their lines tangled. So he would give them his pole and he would take their pole and he would untangle the line. And then they would get their line tangled and he would give them the untangled line back and he would take theirs. And they said, all dad ever did was untangle our lines. Now, two things. I want to hook you by the ear and I want you to have untangled lines. I I believe that a simple understanding of the first three verses of Revelation will really stir the heart of a devoted person to keep their lines, all of them, untangled in life. You get what this is saying. And the promises that are made in the book of Revelation, in the revelation of Jesus Christ, when we understand understand about a dozen things about this book, I think it will have the effect of really untangling all the lines in, in our life. So let me tell you these these dozen things, and I'm entitling my message today from the text, the time is near, the time is near, and that's a quote from the text. And here they are, a dozen facts about Revelation. First, the book is the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Sometimes people call it the Revelation of St. John the Divine, but it's only secondarily that. It's the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And what is Revelation? Revelation means it's a translation of a word called apocalypse. It sounds like apocalypse, which in modern culture we tend to think of as a really scary movie, right? With a lot of explosions, a good movie, yeah. Um, But in the Bible, the word means unveiling. It means uncovering. And Revelation reveals, it uncovers a lot, It uncovers a warning. It reveals a warning to these different churches and to their messengers or maybe their angels or their pastors. It it reveals instructions on how to live an honorable and holy life in the midst of a, a dishonorable, unholy people. Even in times of persecution, it's revealed here. It's revealed, it's uncovered in Revelation, the ultimate triumph of those believers who are who uh, suffer. And we see that on the news every night. Believers being tortured, being persecuted, dying. It's revealed in this book what happens to people who die for their faith. The triumph of the martyrs. It's revealed in this book the worship of Jesus Christ in a most glorious setting. You might go to work tomorrow and hear his name blasphemed, but when you read this book, you see Jesus the way he really is. He's revealed. Revealed in this book is the end of human history. Revealed in this book is the final political arrangement of the world. Revealed in this book is God's eventual triumph over evil. Revealed in this book are God's saving purposes. Revealed in this book is the career of the Antichrist and of Armageddon and of the kingdom and of the new heaven and of the the new earth and then the final end of the earth as we know it, the eternal kingdom of God and of Christ forever. But mostly, this reveals who Jesus is 
and what's going to happen in the future. Good Bible scholars disagree about whether it's a revelation that comes from Jesus Christ or it's a revelation of Jesus Christ himself. And I think the best scholars say it's really both. Because in revealing who Jesus is, and you certainly see that, but clearly in the text it says he's going to, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. So it's a revelation of who Jesus is, but it is specifically stated here, it's a revelation of things going to happen in the future. So listen to me, you have in your lap a book that reveals to you what's going to happen in the future. That's kind of a big deal. It also promises blessings. Don't you love it when somebody's waiting on you at a store and they get all done and what do they say to you? They say, have a good day, or they say what? Have a blessed day. I was like, I love it when they say that. It always makes me kind of go, you know what that's all about? I love it when somebody says, have a blessed day. That's beautiful, I think. This book is full of that. It starts and ends with a promise of blessing. No other Bible book does that. In chapter 1, it says, blessed is the one who reads. In chapter two, or, uh, chapter 14, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Chapter 16, blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments on. <laughs> we'll explain that later. Um, chapter 19, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Chapter 20, blessed and holy are those who have a part in the first resurrection. Chapter 22, blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And then finally, in chapter 22, blessed are those who wash their robes. It begins and ends with a promise of blessing. That ought to make you, that ought to make your hands tremble and your heart beat fast just to study and read this book because God, who's in charge of everything, has promised that those who read it and those who hear it and those who, who, who apply it will be blessed. It's a promise of God. Kind of a big deal. That's the revelation. It's also a revelation of what's going to take place in the future. Now, now, not everyone agrees with this. If you Google a few things and you watch some YouTube videos, you understand there are people who love Jesus Christ, who have, in many cases, died for the faith, who have a different view of this book than we do. It's important that we say that. There are also people who are heretical, who are not genuinely within the pale of orthodoxy, if you will, who have some really fanciful ideas about this book. This book is, uh, because it's apocalyptic and because it's symbol-laden, it's very, people have taken it and they've done all kinds of very fanciful things with it. And there are really kind of two extremes, right? You have these, the extreme of people when they preach Revelation, it's all crazy sensationalism and, and, they, and they're, they're, they're reading all kinds of things into it. And they really kind of, in a way, they don't do honor to the, to the word by treating it like that. And yet, on the other hand, there are people who don't really seem like they're that excited about Jesus coming back at all. And they're explaining away different things and it's not even future to them. There are the preterists, if you, if you will, and they believe that, that really almost everything that happened in Revelation happened before AD 70, and they believe the book was d- dated in you know, 69 AD, but the best scholars say that it was in about in 96 AD. And that makes a big difference because if you're saying that everything that happened in Revelation happened, that happened that, that's what's described in Revelation, all these terrible kind of apocalyptic kinds of things, they happen in, in AD 70, like the preterists do. The preterists would say, for instance, chapter 1, verse 7, he is coming in the clouds and every eye will see them. He isn't really coming in the clouds and every eye isn't really going to see him. It's kind of he's coming in judgment kind of, kind of symbolically. They actually believe that verse 7 means that Jesus came in judgment, in a judgment in AD 70 in the fall of Jerusalem, and they didn't literally and physically appear. 
But the Bible specifically says many, many, many times, so the partial preterists are within the pale of orthodoxy, and they have this view. We don't agree with them. The full preterists are outside the pale of orthodoxy. They don't even literally believe Jesus is going to physically return someday. We, we don't see it that way. <laughs> the historicist approach to this, some would say, well, it's just a description of the sweep of human history, but I don't think that's true, and here's why. If you read it, you see that when you get to chapter 6, from chapter 6 to verse 18, most of what happens in there happens in about three and a half years. It's not the long sweep of human history. It just can be read literally. This happens in seven years. This happens in three and a half years. There's the idealist view, which they kind of make it all symbolic or allegorical, and they have really trouble being consistent in their interpretation. They say it's general descriptions of spiritual warfare, and they really kind of stay out of the nuts and bolts of timing. But, but then we would be interpreting this in a different way than we interpret the rest of the Bible a genuine, literal interpretation of the Bible. We see it as future. And that's what the Bible says right here. Things that are going to take place. It says it in verse 1. And then it says, for the time is near there in, in verse 3. Now, now, when you study the, the Bible like this, you've you got to do a little teaching, right? And, and so when I'm in my study and I'm studying, I, you know, then I'm, I'm studying and I'm trying to figure things out. And I'm trying to think, what does it mean? And what does it say? And what does it mean? And, what does it, and, and how should I apply this to the people? And that's actually pretty hard labor. If you've never done it, you probably can't appreciate that. Just like maybe I don't appreciate how hard it is that you do what you do. But it's actually pretty hard work. The Bible says that, those who labor in the word and doctrine. So I'm in my study back there. I'm in my study at home. And I'm trying to figure things out. And then I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to teach that to people. It's called, it's called theology. You're just the science of God, you know. And you do that, and it's, it's not, it's, in a way, it's not fun. In a way, it's just hard work. But here's what happens. Here's what happens. So you're back there, and you're, and you're doing this, and you're figuring things out, and you're writing them down, and it's all kind of scattered, and, and all of a sudden, something touches your soul very deeply, and the theology becomes doxology. And that, that's what, can I ask you the question, you know, has your theology become doxology? Has the truth of God's word reached a place where it touches you in the deepest kind of way and it moves you in a deep way and it convinces you in a deep way and it really has a profound effect on your life and it really helps you untangle the, the tangled lines of your life? Some of you right now are going through the darkest hours of your life and you have a very difficult thing that you are facing. I will tell you that most of the advice that you get on Oprah or Dr. Phil or on fantasy football advice, or most of the advice is going to be worthless to you. But I will tell you, this book will not be worthless because it's ultimate. It will untangle all the, this is the word of God. Your theology then should become doxology. It becomes worship. And that's what I'm saying here. We'll study this book, and we'll try to uh, understand it, and, we, and we'll, 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 we'll apply our mind to it, and we'll be good students of it, but then, but we're not going to just study our way through this book. We want to worship our way through this book. That's the idea. That's the way the book is written. It's written with regular, if I can say, interruptions of worship. So you got pictures of the earth, which is in chaos, and then worship, and that's what we want to do. Let's worship our way through the book. Now, what does it mean when it says here, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants things which must shortly take place? Now, that's a little tricky, isn't it? Because you think, okay, everything here is going to start right away. But if we understand this book right, not all of it started right away. 
All right? So there's a couple ways of understanding that. One would be the word, the word has a couple of nuances of meaning, one of which is like what we would call imminency. In other words, it, it, it's not necessarily saying this is going to start right now. It's saying this could happen at any time. Now, I believe that's true, and here's why I believe that's true, because it's very consistent with what the rest of the New Testament, when the rest of the New Testament talks about Jesus' return, it talks like it could happen any time, and they ought to be ready any time. The end of all things is near, Peter says. And here we are 2,000 years later. So in other words, he didn't say, Peter wasn't wrong. Peter was saying, we're now in the end times, technically, and the return of Christ could happen at any time. We believe this imminence in a moment, in a twinkle of an eye. 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about it that way. And 1 Corinthians 15 in Hebrews 10 says, even so much the more. Remember, as we see the day approaching, it's almost like Christian church is supposed to live in anticipation of the return of Christ. I will tell you that you can almost put a thermometer on a church, and if they're excited about Jesus coming back, that's a good sign. You you know know the old folks in the church are always coming to me saying, Pastor, when are you going to preach on prophecy? You know why that is? Because they're losing their marbles? That's not why. Because they've been around the horn. Because they love Jesus. People who love Jesus want to talk about Jesus coming back. People who don't want to talk about fantasy football all day, right? People who don't want to talk about cross-stitch, crochet, knitting, raising puppies, and all ad, you know, yak, yak, yak. People, I'm not saying that all those things are evil. Some of them are. But I'm, I'm saying that when you love the Lord, you love the return of the Lord. And that's what you'll notice with these, if you will, these uh, dear old timers. They love the Lord. They love the Lord. Uh, Acts 1-7, we don't know the times or seasons that the Father has put in his own power. Luke 2, 12 says 40, be dressed, be ready. The Son of Man is coming in an hour you don't expect. So we believe that when it says these things are taking place shortly, a couple things. Number one, it means it could happen at any time. And we ought to, it's soon. It's always soon. It's always, always be ready. It's always sooner than it ever was before, right? It's, it's, it's more likely, he'll get, you see what I'm saying? And it's also something else, and that is if you look at the way the narrative works, the first three chapters are letters to churches, and then you have, boom, throne room of heaven. Chapter four and chapter five, and it's almost like, here is what's obviously happening now, but then what's obviously future, once that starts, it goes bang, it really takes off. I really believe that's what he's saying. He's saying, obviously, when I write the letters to the churches, the, the, the letters that Jesus gave to the churches are historic churches in what we would call modern Turkey, Asia Minor. And those churches were overrun by Islam, and we'll talk about that as we go through these churches. Very germane, the... the the, uh, the, the, the threat of Islam. We'll talk about that. These churches were overrun by, by Islam and they don't exist. So those very churches like Moody Church in Chicago is patterned after a church in Istanbul which has been turned into a mosque. Kind of should make you think. But that's kind of another subject for another day. What we're saying is in chapters 1, 2, and 3... You obviously have these historic churches. But in chapter 4 now, it begins with a vision of something that's going to happen in the future. If you will, and I'll explain this later, I believe it's after the rapture of the church. But you have a throne room of heaven in chapter 4 and 5. And you have this discussion, if you will, about who's going to be worthy to to unroll the scroll. And when you unroll the scroll, this is the title deed of the earth. And the rest, as the scroll gets unrolled, things are happening. 
So as you, as you, as you unroll the scroll, these seals are broken and, the, tr- and the, the, the judgments come out. And it's a judgment time for the earth, which is really bad. And it's a judgment time for believers, which is really good, sort of bittersweet. So you have the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's a revelation of what's going to take place in the future. And it's a revelation, this should not be overlooked, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave. Kind of a good idea. If God is going to give a book, you might want to read that book. If God has spoken a book into existence, you might want to cherish that this is a book. It's from God. Think of it. Fourth, it's given to Jesus. So they say there's like a transmission. God takes the book and he gives the book to Jesus. Why did he do that? What's that all about? That's interesting. Um, it's the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ and the revelation from Jesus Christ. But I believe it's important for us to understand this very clearly. Okay, Jesus inherited the earth because of what he did. He pleased the Father. He died. He pleased the Father. And God gives, you know, the resurrection is first fruits, and the ascension is another example of fruits, and the coming of the Holy Spirit is another example of fruit. But then there's going to come a time when God gives the earth to Jesus. And this is the title deed he's given. Jesus, this is the inheritance of the earth. That's exactly what Psalm 2 says. The earth isn't just going to be spiraling off into nowhere and blow up. He's going to gift it to Jesus. Now, it's going to be refined by fire, the Bible says. But in other words, Jesus isn't going to lose his grip on the earth. He created it, and he's going to redeem it. That's the story of the Bible. The creation and fall and the redemption of earth, planet earth, and the people in it is the story of the Bible. And now we're coming to the conclusion of the story of the Bible. Jesus gets the title deed to the earth. So the book goes from God to Jesus as a, t- as a title deed, if you will. The scroll goes to him. Therefore, he is highly exalted, and he's given a name which is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. People uh, above the earth and on the earth and under the earth, that's really freighted, specific, technical language, saying there ain't anybody on earth, the mission or Nero or anybody, or, or, or our presidents in past, or our current president, or our presidents to come, or the Supreme Court. Nobody is superior to Jesus Christ. He's going to own everything and he's going to rule everything. John MacArthur said that in revealing Jesus, he said, he's risen glorified son of God among the churches. This is Jesus in Revelation. He's the lamb in heaven, publicly invested with authority to carry out the determined preliminary judgments on earth. He comes to earth as the king of kings and the lord of lords. In Revelation, Jesus is the Christ. In Revelation, he's the judge on the great white throne. In Revelation, he's the lamb on the throne. In Revelation, he is I, Jesus, the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And then he lists titles of Jesus in the Revelation. Faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, ruler over the kings of the earth, the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end, he who is and was and is to come, almighty, first and last, son of God, man, he who lives is he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks amidst the seven golden lampstands, who is the sharp two-edged sword. He is the Son of God. He has eyes like a flame of fire. He has feet like fine brass. He has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. He is he was holy and true. He has the key of David. He is the amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lord and holy, true, the Lord God Almighty, the King of saints, and the Word of God. That'll untangle your lines. When the Jehovah's Witness come to your door and tell you that Jesus isn't God, tell them, what book are you reading? Are you kidding me? Have you really read that book? That book makes Jesus absolutely everything. 
that he would have the preeminent place. I don't know what trouble you're going through today. I don't know what heartache you have. I don't know what fear hangs over your soul today. I don't know what question that you can't answer. I do know this. Jesus is the king, and you trust him. In the end, he's in control of everything. This revelation is from God, and it's given to Jesus through angels. Through angels. There's more angel ministry in this book than in any other book. Chapter 5, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 14, 15, 16, 18, 19, 20, 67 times in this book. There are references to angels. It's this ominous, something big is happening. God's involving his angelic messengers to give a very important word, a final word. This is an exciting book. This is a supernatural book. And so these are five things. Here's a sixth one. It's given to John to John the Apostle. It's interesting. Who's this man? Well, he's born to Zebedee and Salome. He's a younger brother of James. The boys were called Sons of Thunder. He, remember initially he competed for um, superiority? Remember that? He actually had his mother helping him with that? This is the guy. Later on, he writes a gospel and then the epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. When he writes the gospel, he's grown. He's a teenager at the Last Supper. But by the time he writes the gospel, he doesn't even use his own name. That's the way it is. The more you grow, the more excited you are about him, and the less you are about promoting you. And by the time he gets to Revelation, he's trembling. When God gives him this, he falls down on his face. He's not going, who's going to be the big shot in the kingdom now? He's on his face. He's a it's tremendous. He leaves Israel. He's an eyewitness of the resurrection. And he's an apostle. And he leaves Israel during the season of persecution. Becomes pastor of the church in Ephesus, influencing churches in Asia Minor, modern Turkey. He pens the Gospel of John, Epistles of John, and this book. He, he grows to an old man in humility. And then, he, and then this is, he's exiled to Patmos where he, writes, where he has this vision and he's told to write it down. And he does. And we have it. Some six interesting facts about Revelation. You want to go with six more? Sure, I knew you did. All right, number seven is for believers. Sometimes people say, I don't understand it. Like, well, it wasn't written to a lot of you. You know, it's like if you're not a believer, you're just reading somebody else's mail. You know, that, there, do you realize that Revelation is apocalyptic literature? It's symbol-laden. It actually is veiled to the trifler. Now, you don't get it unless you really work at getting it. You can get it, but you've got to actually study it. It's, you, you can't spend all of your time doing empty stuff and really understand this book. But if you apply yourself to this book, you can understand this book. But you have to compare Scripture with Scripture because the symbols aren't all defined in the immediate context or in the near context. Sometimes you have to go elsewhere in the Bible to figure out what that symbol meant. And God did that on purpose. So it wasn't a mistake. He didn't say, oops, he didn't slip. God doesn't do that. It's the way he wrote it. This book is written, notice what it says, Revelation. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a revelation God gave to show his servants. Doulos, that's the love slave. Remember that? When you're, you're done serving what you're required to serve, and then you go and you have him put a hole in your ear, and you say, I will serve you for the rest of my life in love. That's what Christians are called, doulos slaves. Isn't that good? I, if, you, if you know Jesus, you get that, right? Hey, Jesus, uh, here I am. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. I'm your slave. That's all I want to be. I'm ready to serve you. Tell me what to do. If you don't get that, you don't know him, see? But if you know him, you get that. And that's, this book is written to those people who are his servants, who are his doula, slaves. It's interesting, isn't it? And then 
You notice it's a revelation to be read aloud to the churches, as we mentioned, which we're, we're doing. It's a revelation that's given to be heard with eager reverence. So the, the, the leaders should read it, and the listeners should listen with a special listening, with a special reverence, with a special eager reverence. I know the people that you work with tomorrow and you go to school, they don't get that. They may mock the Bible, they may reject the Bible, but we trust that God, what God says is true. That if he's going to bless those of us who listen to the reading of this word with eager reverence and who act upon it, because the Bible is meant to be acted upon. You like those? Those are cool. We thought we'd give you a little tiny way of remembering come, grow, serve. What do you think? <laughs> That's humorous, isn't it? Why is the big deal? It's because we're not about just sitting around reading the Bible here. We're about being active followers of Jesus Christ. So we have a process that we've thought through as leaders in the church about how you can be inspired to be a follower, not just a church-going listener, but a listening, dutiful obeyer, because you're not going to get the deal if you just come to church. You, that's not that much fun, just to come to church. That's great, but it's not enough. Not, no, not unless you're engaged in a mission of Jesus. You're not really, you don't really, you, it doesn't really raise your pulse until you're engaged in Jesus' mission. And so what we want to do is we want to say, come to Christ and fellowship in the assembly and then grow, get involved in some grow group, a small group, a Bible study, a one-on-one discipleship, a prayer partner. Listen, we're challenging you to do this. I know this is true. When I see a young man, let's say, and I see that I want him to have a happy life like I've had. I want him to have a happy wife like I have. I I want him to have God, children who love the Lord. I want him to have grandchildren who love the Lord. I, I, I look at him, I think, oh, you got to come to church more often than you do. You show up at church every once in a while, man. You got to devote yourself to following Jesus. And then that's the beginning. And then after that, you got to get in, you got to have face to face time with some older brothers in the Lord. Here you are, a young guy. And we got guys like that in the church right here. And we go through it. We got, you're just a young guy. You don't, maybe don't know everything. There are old guys in the church here who know the Lord, man. These guys pray, they know the Lord. They know the word. They know doctrine. If you would go over to their house and you knock on, if you call them on the phone and say, could I come over here once a week and just, would you pray with me? I'm thinking of a guy right now. He's in the room. He's not doing very well. His back hurts a lot. I know that I know about him. He's a World War II veteran. If I say enough, you guys are going to know exactly who I'm talking about. If, If a young guy called him on the phone and said to him, could I come over and see you? He would say yes. And there might be treats involved. I don't know. But he would say yes. So, so you go over there, talk a little Tigers baseball, and then you might say to him, you know, if a young guy said to him, will you pray with me? He would pray with you. And then maybe if you're like fussing with your wife, you might say to him, hey, I'm kind of fussing with my wife. What would you do if uh, your wife said this harebrained thing, you know? And then he would give you some counsel. That's what I'm talking about. Grow. Do you get that? That's what we're saying. Don't just come and sit in a pew. Come and sit in a pew. It's powerful. Give and serve and worship and listen to the preaching and then get a mentor. Ask for a mentor or get in a little group. Have a couple with another couple. This is what God has put upon our hearts here in this church. I am so excited about it. It's five years of looking under the hood and then let's roll with this. And about 2010, 2011, we decided simple church, discipleship process. This is how we're going to help people grow in the Lord. And we're going to involve everybody that wants to be involved. It's very exciting. So we're not just about listening to the word. We're about doing the word. This is one way to do it. It's our way of saying it. You can do it a different way. It's okay. And then from growing, you say, how can I serve? That's when it really kind of comes in place. That's when the circle closes. Am I right? Uh, There was a lady in our church years ago, and she was just the epitome of a godly lady. Everybody loved her. Her name was Alma Johnson, elderly lady, 
She would sing. She was a prayer warrior. I visited her home one day. And I said, you know, tell me how you came to the Lord. And she had been widowed. Her husband was killed in an accident over Muskegon, unloading a, a, a ship. She remarried a guy who wasn't, who wasn't a Christian. He eventually came to know the Lord. And she was very shy. And the pastor came to her and asked her if she would run the Bible school. She said, I can't run the Bible school. And she's like a lot of you. You know, you like to go to church. You just don't want to do too much. You know, I don't want to, and some of you do. But, you know, she didn't want to do it. pastor said, you can do it. And he coached her through that. I wouldn't, you would never have known that Alma Johnson at one time didn't think she could run the Bible school because she was one of those church ladies that just, you know, she had broad shoulders and does all kinds of stuff. What was it that made her this saint, this deep, you know, well of, 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 of Christian maturity? It was because she didn't just come to church, but she involved herself in getting her roots down the Lord, and she served the Lord. She found a place to serve him. I'm not talking about you serving in a way that's weird for you. So enough of that. We'll keep going here. But this word is to be acted upon. It's like this. If Jesus is the king, then can you please tell me why in the world you wouldn't want to find a place to serve him? Jesus is the king. Go to the nursery. Amen? Go to the nursery. And love on those little ones. Listen to the podcast. It'll be there. The whole 45 minutes of it will be there. And you can be in the nursery and you can be praying, I'll stop talking. You know, so that you can get out of the nursery. But, but then there are little children there whose parents are under the word. Or serve in Awana. Or ride the bus. Or take the pumpkin bars to your neighbor. Do what God gifted you to do. You see what I'm saying? This isn't just some ethereal book that somebody read. Oh, this is like made me feel good today. No. He's saying, I'm Jesus. Are you going to serve me now? Because you are made for this. Hey, uh, uh, how can you say, I love Jesus, he's the king of the universe, but I never give him anything. Are you kidding me? He's the king of the universe, and you never, you never pay him homage. You never bring him a gift. Don't you bring gifts to a king? You say, you're the king. You're everything. Here are my gifts. You, you, people that, speaking of the old timers, the ones that know the Lord, have been around the horn for a while, they'll tell you that. You go to their house, you talk to them, they'll say things like this. You'll hear them say it over and over again. You can never outgive God. We're not talking about some wacko prosperity gospel thing. We're just talking about folks who love the Lord and express their love in in giving. Okay, let me me finish up. And 11 is, there's a blessing attached, and you you got that. As it says right here, um, blessed, verse 3, is he who reads those who hear and keep those which are written. And it's the culmination of the Bible story. It's the grand climax of the Bible narrative. Interesting, just a real quick thing on the way out. This won't take me more than 30 minutes. Um, Do you ever notice how many sevens are in here? Every time you turn around, seven. Seven churches, seven spirits, seven candlesticks, seven stars. This is going to be rap if I do this right. Seven lamps, seven seals, seven horns, seven eyes, seven angels. Seven trumpets, seven thunders, seven thousand, seven heads, seven crowns, seven angels, seven plagues, seven vials are bulls, seven mountains, seven kings. What's up with that? Why all the sevens? That wasn't a mistake. And then, not with the numbers of them, there are other sevens, like this in the Bible, seven Beatitudes and years, seven years of judgment and seven letters to churches and, and, and seven I am's and signs and seven doxologies in heaven. What does seven mean? It's not apparent in Revelation, but it's really clear when you just tie Genesis and Revelation together. The first appearance of this is God, verse, Genesis 12, uh, 2 and verse 3. God blessed 
the seventh day, sanctify it because in it he rested from his work, which he had created and made. In other words, this is the, the symbol of completion. That's really significant because the Bible is not an open-ended book. This is the end of it. This is the book where God brings to seven, to completion, to fulfillment, his redemptive plan. God's whole story is here now. This is the culmination. It's the climax. It's the completeness. And that's what it says, 22, 18, and 19. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in the book. This is not something you would want to happen to you. So we have, that's why we sometimes call it the complete canon of Scripture. Folks, we have the revelation of God. And this is the close of it. So you have... Uh, in the Old Testament, so it all goes together. In the Old Testament, in, in Revelation, there are 404 verses. 207 of those verses mention over 500 times example or examples from the Old Testament. No Old Testament quotations, but other examples. In other words, if you want to understand the Bible, you study the whole Bible. If you want to understand Revelation, you have to understand all the different symbols and so forth are tied to other places in the Bible. In other words, Revelation is the completion of God's uh, story. It's the climax. God's promised blessing to those who read it, to those who listen, to those who obey. And the first thing to do to obey is to listen and obey, right? God, thank God the supernatural revelation of the future has been faithfully transmitted to us. You have it in your Bible. No small thing. Thank God that the full revelation of Jesus Christ, who he is, has been given to us. You can read it aloud and study it and apply it. Can I just sort of say, to you, here's, and I'm almost done here, and that is this, and that is, so come every Sunday, but come ready having read the, the, the chapter. Study it with, uh, with an eagerness, and God will reveal himself to you, and when you obey what you studied, he promised blessing on you and your family. Who doesn't want that? And let's live with confidence that there's no greater blessing on earth or in heaven that we could ever have than the blessing of the Lord. And let's keep in mind the bittersweet nature of Revelation. If God is pouring out judgments on the earth, that's good. It's kind of like, well, he's bringing his justice to completion, and it's good for us, those of us who are going to be taken to him. It's very bad for everyone who doesn't know him, for everyone else. It's bittersweet. Let's keep in mind those things. And that should help you keep your lines untangled and keep the hook out of your ear. We're going to sing a song of obedience to the Lord, and we're going to be dismissed.